Hello, I'm Marshall Brown, and this is Water Matters. This is the first installment in our speaker series, which brought together 60 concerned scientists, citizens, and policymakers to discuss these important issues. Methoprene, a larvicide used for mosquito control, has been a source of great controversy on Long Island. At issue is the claim that methoprene kills much more than mosquitoes. There are countless other insects and invertebrates that are affected by it so that the cost of mosquito spraying is the ecological destruction of our marshlands. Emerging contaminants present a second chemical threat to Long Island's environment. 1,4-Dioxane, a byproduct found in many consumer products, and PFOS, PFAS, a family of flame retardants, are carcinogenic at parts per billion or even trillion. The panel will be introduced by Todd Shaw, Chairman of the Board of Save the Great South Bay. Good morning, everybody. Um, it is, uh, it's my privilege and honor to welcome you to the view, to actually this gorgeous view. Um, and uh, uh, Save the Great South Bay's inaugural speaker series of networking breakfast entitled Methoprene, Our Marshlands and Emerging Contaminants. My name is Todd Shaw. I'm board president of Save the Great South Bay. We are a nonpartisan environmental nonprofit formed to drive positive change through science, facts, and collaboration with other organizations. We have um, we try to have no ego, no personal agenda. Uh, we're ordinary folks just uh, trying to do the right thing. We understand that the economics of doing the right thing now is actually a drop in the bucket to kicking the can down the road and leaving these problems our problems to the kids and grandkids to solve. Our tagline is start where you stand. So many people are paralyzed by the bigger issues of climate change, saving polar bears and shrinking ice shelf and joining Greenpeace. We say don't worry about any of that. Get up, go down two, three blocks to your local stream and clean it up. Learn about its ecology, history and origins. Now just imagine if everyone in every town did that. I grew, up in I grew up on the Amityville River in the Western Great South Bay. My childhood completely revolved around being on and in the bay, and today, there are certain days I won't even let my family in the water. My passion is to help reverse that damage for future generations. We created these issues, and we must come up with solutions to solve them. We have an amazing panel today representing different points of view and options. Our goal is to deliver timely, actionable content while at the same time giving you the ability to reconnect with friends, colleagues, and perhaps develop new relationships too. Now it's my privilege to introduce our first speaker, Kevin McAllister. Kevin holds an undergraduate degree in natural resource conservation and marine biology with a master's of science in coastal zone management. Kevin's professional experience in environmental protection spans 30 years working in government, consultancy, and the nonprofit sectors. Thanks for being here, Kevin. Good morning, everyone. Um, I want to thank Save the Great South Bay for inviting me here today, and appreciate being part of this. Um, I know our time, at least introduction-wise, is somewhat brief, but uh, I want to share with you, I guess, my involvement over the years with uh, the whole issue of mosquito control. And, and this dates back to 1999, 
Uh, some of you may recall West Nile virus appeared in New York City. Uh, the jurisdictions, including Suffolk County, were uh, extremely concerned as to what this means. Uh, we all shared that concern, you know, is this going to be widespread West Nile throughout our region? Um, I recall addressing the legislature at that time to be cautious about escalating the program. And really since, uh, I guess, 2000 forward, um, you know, I've been studying the issue, informing myself, uh, science-based facts. Um, you know, I think I'm uh, quite informed on their operations. So with respect to mosquito control, of course, uh, they have the pesticide component. Uh, when we reach the warm weather months, uh, we're addressing the larval stages, uh, the larvicide treatments, which I'll, I'll speak about methaprene in a moment. Uh, and then they move into the adulticides uh, when there's, uh, of course, flying infest infestations. And then in the winter months, uh, wetland manipulations, as I'll call them. Um, my review of methaprene, I'll, I'll say probably around 2005, and you know, just by point of some genesis or process, uh, the county up until that time really had no thorough review of their operations. And, uh, you know, I want to recognize former legislator Ginny Fields for being uh, responsible for bringing uh, vision of vector control uh, into an annual review, review process, which was required. So basically every December, their uh, annual plan of work has to come under review. Uh, I've certainly been addressing the issue uh, in that process. Council on Environmental Quality reviews the, their work plan and then ultimately the legislature uh, has to adopt the plan and then uh, the activities would commence for that calendar year. Um, methaprene, I became aware of, I guess with some of the research and, and particularly Dr. Michael Horst, who at the time was down in Georgia, Mercer University, uh, he's now up in the University of Maine. Uh, he started looking at the implications of methaprene on crustacea. Um, so lobsters and crabs in particular, this is a laboratory analysis. And you know, by way of uh, the animal kingdom, uh, insects and crustacea uh, fall under arthropods. So methaprene is, is uh, classified as an insect growth uh, regulator. Uh, it affects the larval stages of insects and crustacea, uh, ultimately alterating uh, a, um, a hormone that affects their ability to uh, metamorphose, metamorphosize into the next stage. Uh, Dr. Horse's work over the years has seen significant reductions uh, in, again, the larval stages, mortality, morbidity, so it, it's really impacting um, offspring and the ability to uh, reproduce. Um, the application of methaprene, again, as we really, I uh, think it's May 1st uh, through September uh, 1st, ultimately the aerial application of, of methaprene along with uh, a product called BTI, uh, which is a bacterial spore. So these are the two larvicide products that the county uses. Uh, my review of the literature on BTI, uh, it's fairly benign except for I think one species. Uh, it has to be uh, directly ingested by feeding larvae. Uh, whereas again, the methaprene is more contact and then uh, dis disrupting the development. 
the application of methoprene is really based on the tidal cycles. So the full moon and new moon, when the tides are extreme, uh, the high marsh is sprayed with methoprene. Um, the county um, engages a, a helicopter company uh, based on the North Fork uh, that treats between 20 and 25,000 acres on an annual basis. Uh, this again is, is uh, referenced in the annual work plans. So roughly every two weeks. Um, in addition to Michael Horse's work, uh, I discovered uh, a, a study, it was a three-year study out in uh, Minnesota looking at freshwater wetlands. Uh, Ann Hershey uh, was the principal researcher on this, uh, ultimately showing significant reductions in insect taxa, uh, where the methoprene applications, again, following the, the populations in these wetlands over three years. Um, on the other side, of course, industry has a you know host of uh, studies that say this is mother's milk. Um, I, I firmly disagree. Um, in the process, and this goes through the years, uh, ultimately in around 2005, uh, there was a lawsuit that I had filed as the former baykeeper uh, compelling Suffolk County to undergo an environmental impact study that had never been done before. Uh, ultimately, in that process, uh, the county engaged a consultant to really review their operations, again, from wetlands to the pesticide applications. Uh, concurrent to the, um, the work of the study that the consultant was providing, the Council on Environmental Quality, which is uh, Suffolk County's arm for State Environmental Quality Review Act, ultimately was reviewing their annual work plan at that time. Uh, they took, um, I'll say, a, a very rigorous review of methoprene in particular uh, in, in the uh, development of that EIS. In 2007, this is about the time when the EIS was also completed, the Council on Environmental Quality at the time uh, made a recommendation by resolution that methoprene should be restricted, uh, should not be applied to wetlands. Uh, unfortunately, the county legislature, which is you know the final decision maker on this, uh, disregarded CEQ's recommendation uh, and has you know subsequently approved methoprene in their annual work plans year after year. Um, Relative to other jurisdictions, and I think this is important to note, um, you know, while you know, we've been talking about methoprene for years, and I, I mentioned to you, obviously, CEQ's decision, uh, around the same time the EIS was undergoing, uh, I came by the um, New York City's environmental impact study. So on the heels of West Nile appearing in 99, in 2001, this, uh, uh, the city uh, released an EIS where their recommendation was methoprene should not be applied where there would be storm conveyance to Jamaica Bay for the reasons that you know, I'm, I'm describing to you, the Im impacts to non-target insects as well as crustacea. Um, in 2013, uh, the state of Connecticut banned uh, prohibition, uh, and I'll say those are synonymous words, um, ultimately banned methoprene in coastal areas where there would be any conveyance to Long Island Sound. 
Uh, Rhode Island has a restriction on methoprene, uh, again, in conveyances where it would enter Narragansett Bay or Long Island Sound. Uh, Massachusetts has something similar. Uh, there was a effort in Maine to have methoprene banned. Uh, it did not have, I guess, the, the force from the industry turned out. Uh, the state legislature did not act on it, to my knowledge. Um, out in Oregon, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in Coos Bay National Wildlife Refuge, a coastal refuge. Uh, ultimately, several years ago, they uh, opted for use of BTI, uh, again, the bacterial spore, as opposed to methoprene. So I, I will say the body of uh, science, uh, the body of jurisdictional act actions uh, taking a prohibition on methoprene um, you know, in, in the interest of, uh, say, Bay Health, uh, the notion that we are knocking out, again, really, uh, uh, say, uh, invisible uh, life forms at that stage, um, you know, it should be unacceptable. Uh, you know, we've got to work on a lot of fronts. Obviously, with respect to upgrades of sewage treatment, uh, managing our sewage waste with nitrogen pollution, uh, climate change, of course, is affecting water bodies everywhere. Uh, the notion that we are, um, call it day in and day out, week in and week out, applying a toxic pesticide that is certainly known to be toxic, where other jurisdictions have uh, determined that, you know, the, the environmental risk here is, is certainly not worth, um, of course, the, the action. Um, in my efforts to educate and move county legislators, again, the you know, ultimate arbitrator here, you know, I have suggested uh, the idea that you know, if this is truly about public health in West Nile, uh, where there is a presence of West Nile virus, and the county, you know, through their operations, uh, you know, they do extensive surveillance of mosquito pools. They are testing to see if West Nile is present in different areas. And I would uh, support the application of methoprene where West Nile has is, is been documented to be present. Uh, limited use where you are actually knocking out, um, uh, I'll say, subsequent generations of, of uh, mosquitoes. So you're, you would suppress the the risk of disease uh, and deal with it. And again, this is a, a limited application. Uh, but unfortunately, that has not been well received. Uh, I think what really drives this, of course, is nuisance control. It, it's not about public health. Um, you know, I think we, we really have to work collectively through education and advocacy, as, as this certainly group does a great job of uh, continuing to ensure that this issue is front and center and to bring people on board that you know, it's not worth the risk. On a state level, uh, for several years running, the, there has been a bill that's been introduced. Uh, it's similar to Connecticut. It would re uh, basically restrict or prohibit uh, methoprene applications um, in coastal areas. Uh, with the exception, again, I think some caveat or qualifier for the presence of West Nile. Uh, unfortunately, that has not gotten the traction in Albany. It's uh, moved through um, a couple of the committees on the assembly side. Uh, we, we had high hopes that it would be passed uh, this past June when, when they were uh, uh, Albany was convening. It did not happen. Uh, so we're back at it. Uh, Again, I, I think from my perspective, we've got to continue to 
educate our neighbors, um, really uh, bring front and center the you know potential damages to our bay at, at a, a, an invisible uh, way, in a sense. Uh, because we're not seeing adult crabs strewn up on a high tide line or fish kills. And then, of course, that would be public outrage. But, you know, when you're talking about a host of crustacea and non-target insects that um, really uh, rely on, on our salt marshes for habitat, um, you know, the notion that we are applying an insidious uh, pesticide, a poison, um, every couple of weeks on these areas, um, you know, this isn't the tack we should be taking. So I, I urge everyone to really uh, do your part to become better informed um, through myself, others that have this information, you know, and I do have uh, volumes of information and, you know, these, uh, as I described, these policies and legislation in other jurisdictions, um, you know, this is happening and it needs to happen here. So I, I think we've got to push back against um, the notion of nuisance control and that it's okay because uh, perhaps we're swatting less mosquitoes and really prioritize bay health and water quality. And uh, again, we're, you know, not as a, a bit of an aside, but, you know, glyphosate, um, I mean, my gosh, you know, over the last, uh, you know, couple of years in particular, I mean, a widespread herbicide, uh, you know, it, it's really rearing its ugly head in so many ways. And I, I would submit that we haven't even touched on the water quality implications as it enters groundwater stream. You know, we're talking eelgrass beds. You know, is there herbicide entering these systems that are affecting it? And I can tell you uh, with certainty, the county has documented herbicides in surface waters out in Peconic Bay. So again, these uh, cumulative impacts do add up. Uh, let's stay focused on methoprene. Let's continue to educate our elected officials. And let's get a reasonable prohibition with a qualifier that you know the county doesn't you know their hands aren't uh, tied in responding to a, a public health issue should it arise. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kevin. That was uh, very thought provoking, and I look forward to the panel discussion uh, shortly. Um, I want to thank the Blessings uh, Hospitality Group for making this beautiful venue uh, possible for, for this uh, morning speaker series. And I'd also like to thank uh, York Analytical Labs for being the presenting sponsor for the speaker series. And with that, it is my great pleasure to introduce the CEO of York Analytical Labs, Michael Beckerich. Um, and uh, if you just... Uh, Bear with me, I will read his uh, short bio here. Uh, Michael Beckrich, a proven leader and project manager, Michael leads a best-in-class team of senior environmental professionals at York. Before joining York, Mr. Beckrich held senior communications positions at pharmaceutical giants Johnson & Johnson, Warner Lambert, and Amgen, where he was responsible for crisis management at the highest level and also served as a media spokesperson. In addition, Michael provided counsel to numerous senior-level executives and world-renowned medical experts on policy issues at public hearings in Washington, D.C. So with that, I yield the floor to Michael. Thank you. Um, I'm, like the Lessings, I'm a, a second-generational business owner. So we have an environmental laboratory. We have a facility in Bridgeport, 
We have a facility in Queens, New Jersey, and are probably the, um, the, the largest group that we, we serve is Long, in Long Island. We do about 20 stops a day at job sites and facilities all over Long Island. And I think we could have done this talk about herb, the difficulty in testing herbicides and pesticides, but today we're gonna talk, I'm gonna talk about emerging contaminants since it's been in the news so much. And I think um, there is a perspective around this that is important that advocates and the media know about um, that, that, I'll, that I'll share. And I, I do have some notes, but um, the New York senators, Chuck Schumer, local officials and the media have been really successful in getting the word out about how um, emerging contaminants, and these are man-made chemicals, are, are a danger. And, and the, the media reports around this are, are true. They're actually, um, it's, it's, been a, it's, been a one, it's been wonderful how people have embraced this. Um, the reports in all of the media show constantly that Long Island is the most affected in New York State. Um, there's, a, there's a, I don't know if you've seen the maps, I know News 12 and some of the local newspapers have shown maps of the contaminated sites around New York State and when you look at Long Island, it's, it's, it's lit up like a Christmas tree. So, so there is a lot, of, um, there's a lot of interest around this. We opened up a uh, emerging contaminants, actually the first in New York City, the Emerging Contaminants Laboratory in Queens, in Richmond Hill, that is looking at this new science. And um, it's evolving every day. Um, the, um, the emerging contaminants I'm talking about today that you read about in the paper, there are two primarily. One is PFAS, and the second is 1,4-dioxane. And um, resistant to grease and stains and very highly water-soluble, PFAS is found mostly in um, uh, firefighter foam. It's found in um, uh, carpets, Teflon, cooking pans, and it, it's everywhere. There's actually quite a few documentaries online about about the, how this started from DuPont and others that, that I recommend that you watch. 1,4-dioxane is interesting because it's found in detergents, household products, and as we've seen in the media, all sorts of beauty products. So these are two hazardous compounds that are new to our industry that are everywhere. They're everywhere. Um, new York State, okay, I'm gonna give them a kudos, a thumbs up, not usually a, a big thumbs up of, of, of some of the regulations, but have taken a really aggressive stance against setting limits for this in drinking water. So in the emerging contaminants, PFAS and 1,4-dioxane are contaminating drinking water supply. And the levels that have been set around this are probably the most aggressive in the country next to California. In fact, on July 8th, Governor Cuomo, um, he announced the state plan to inf start enforcing these. It's going to take some time. My sense is that year and a half is going to be two years or so. But the idea that he has set limits um, and is going to start enforcing them is really important. It means that all of the vocalness of advocacy groups, environmental groups, has been heard. In fact, um, they have already allocated money towards the cleanup of these. And from the last reports that I've seen, Again, I don't know for sure, but nine communities in Long Island have been given $3 million each to start looking at um, how they can protect the water systems. Um, 
and through the media grassroots events, there has been a, I would say, a groundswell of attention around this. We've never seen anything like this, where there has been so much noise, and, um, and it has all been very consistent, which is, this is a serious problem, it's affecting the drinking water, and, but the, the question that still is open is, well, what do you do about it? And, um, and I think that's really where more education needs to be, um, because you know, starting to run out and putting in carbon filter systems or trying to treat it may be a little short-sighted. They're really, it's such an emerging area, emerging contaminants, that um, this needs to be looked at closely. Um, as New York City's only lab that does this testing, I think we have a, I have another side of the story to tell. Um, and um, most importantly, testing for these emerging contaminants is really hard. It's really, really hard. Okay, we're looking for trace compounds, parts per trillion, not billion, we're looking million, we're looking at parts per trillion, which is really small. I mean, this is a, the tip of a needle in a haystack that we're looking for in compounds. So the idea that um, this is an easy solution is, is not true. Um, and I, I think it's important that people have patience surrounding this. But, um, and we see it. We see it from our environmental consultants that we work with. We see it with our industrial clients. We work with the Long Island Railroad. We work with National Grid. We work with Con Edison. We work with developers. And everybody is aware of the, of, of the, of the risks and the, the real hazards of this in the drinking water supply. Um, I want to, though, emphasize that this is a difficult analysis to do. In October, we, we decided that we were going to invest in this area. We've been, we have been testing environmental um, analysis for you know, 40 years, and this came up very quickly. In October, we spent a million dollars. We bought a piece of equipment called an LCMS, a liquid chromatology mass spectrometry instrument. Okay. Not only did we need to spend the money on this piece of equipment that is looking, that can separate these contaminants from water and soil samples, but we had to spend money on an extraction system, a solid phase extraction system. Again, these are technical terms, but I wanna, I wanna emphasize the idea that this is not something that everybody can do. Um, and um, the resources against the testing part of this are really important to, to recognize. Um, we found somebody that learned how to run the instrument because there was nobody in this area. We actually found somebody from the Midwest to come out to us and, um, and help us train and run this piece of equipment. So this has moved so fast where we didn't even have this in our testing regimen in October. We bought a piece of equipment. Last month we spent an additional million dollars and we purchased a second piece of equipment and a third extraction system around this because it's moving so quickly. Um, that's never happened in our industry before. So in terms of the attention, I think it's been, it's been, very, it's been a very positive thing on the industry. Um, the science of detecting this, though, is moving really fast. And there are public laboratories there are that, that have, been, have the first generation of LCMS instrumentation that we're looking at testing this, these compounds in drinking water. But what's happened now is that this has gotten, people are thinking about, well, how is it getting in the drinking water? And of course, in Long Island, with the aquifer, you have to think about 
the groundwater and the soil that surrounds it. And how is that getting in there? Well, when you're looking at parts per trillion, again, really hard to find, okay, and you're thinking about the matrix that it's in, drinking water is, is essentially a clean matrix. So the idea of separating these compounds from drinking water is what I'll call relatively easy in comparison to looking at groundwater and looking at soil which is much, much more complex. There's actually a new round of, of um, equipment that's out there that helps testing this. Okay? Um, to give you an example of how fast this is moving, and I think that this should give some solace to the environmental awareness groups and public advocates, is that um, the Department of Health, New York State Department of Health, provides laboratories with our license. And they're really good at identifying areas that they can charge us for. So they charge us for every compound that we run. And there is no licensing for PFAS in groundwater and soil yet. It's, so we've been operating as a, as, a, um, as a pioneer, as a renegade in, in, in a way of trying to figure out what's the best science that we could put forward so that way we could provide data that is legally defensible. Last month I spoke at the Suffolk County Bar Association meeting and it was SRO. It was, it, was, it was awesome to see how much interest there was because what we're finding is that the lawsuits are starting to be fast and furious around, around the contamination of this. But, so we're on the hook of providing, I tell people all the time, we're like Switzerland. We, just, we, we're, we, we work with everybody and our goal is to provide data that is accurate, that could be holed up in court, and is going to provide people with the truth about what is in the material. So again, testing this in groundwater and soil is, is difficult. Um, and we've been providing, um, we've been investing every week, every month, every day, and looking at where is this thing heading. Just this morning, I heard that there is actually a new analysis that's starting to be required by the DEC and New York State. So the DEC, just so you know, New York State DEC governs the engineering clients that we have. The Department of Health governs the laboratories. They don't necessarily talk to each other, so no surprise there. But the idea that um, they're asking us, the DEC is requiring state projects um, that are getting funding and having to go through to do this type of testing, but the Department of Health hasn't, doesn't have any licensing for it yet, is really unique. This is, a, this is a situation that our industry hasn't, hasn't seen before. But what it is promising, again, I'm gonna keep reiterating this message is, is everybody is rowing in the same direction. Being on the water, I could use that phrase. Everybody is heading in the right direction, which is, this is a problem. We need to find out how much of this is in the ground. And then most importantly, and we'll talk about this in the discussion, is how do you clean it up? Because it's not an easy thing. Um, I do want to also mention that um, in New York State, they have a list of 21 compounds. So there are, let's say, and I'm not a, I don't have a chemist background, I'm a businessman, but there's a list of a thousand different PFAS chemicals that are out there. New York State has identified 21 that they require to be tested. And um, there are, again, there are lots of others that are not being looked at. So we call it the New York 21. There's a list of these that we provide a report for. So we've made sure that when we provide data on a site, whether it's a um, drinking water, groundwater, or soil, 
that we can clearly define these 21 types of PFAS compounds that are in the material. Um, that's quickly changing. There's a new analysis called TOP, which I had to write this down, it's that new, total oxidized um, precursor assays. And, and that's looking at um, precursors to PFAS. So this is really moving very quickly, and we have a team at our office led by one of our senior scientists that is figuring out ahead of the Department of Health, how do we identify this, what's the analysis that needs to be done, and how do we report it in a way that people can clearly talk about the data that are out there. Um, so, you know, I was talking to somebody here in the audience about, about um, the impact of this on this industry, and I was trying to make a comparison, and um, not to be political, but I find this to be like climate change which is, um, it's obvious that it's a problem, that it's out there. I mean, there aren't many people that can deny it, but um, you know, it, it, is, it is an issue. So that, but the idea of how do you solve it, it's not so clear. It's gonna take some time. So in, in, the, in the respect of how you deal with emerging contaminants in drinking water, I think demanding that action happen right away needs to be tempered some. The science needs to be looked at. Um, and, um, and I think at some point soon, that more, as more data are collected on these sites, there will be a, a real good direction on how you clean this up. In the meantime, okay, we're gonna continue to focus on when reports come out about that a site is contaminated, providing data that are accurate, that are third party, that you can, that you can look at. Again, the, the, the longer story is, um, is still to come. So I know we'll talk about some of that during our discussion, but again, um, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to implore to you that things are being done, and we've never seen anything like this before. So um, um, continue to be vocal, continue to read, but look at both sides of it. Um, and, um, um, and hopefully next year when we do another one of these speaker series, we can start talking about some of the sites in your community that have been cleaned up. And, um, and what was being done, because there will be some trial and error, for sure. So, thank you very much. We'll now move to a, oh, we'll, uh, now move to a uh, the panel discussion on all this. Um, the first question that comes to mind is, uh, is science is leading the way. Um, but it's as though we've opened up a Pandora's box. Uh, and this, the scale of this is just jaw-dropping. Um, New York State uh, is uh, about to pass a law uh, saying that uh, one fordoxane has to be uh, one parts per million or less, and, um, and uh, PFAS uh, uh, would need to be uh, 10 parts per trillion. Very sensitive equipment there. Uh, right, with a T. Um, but um, even though we're gonna have $350 million <coughs> allocated to those places that, uh, or, or uh, water sources that don't meet that uh, standard, the uh, question comes to mind, given this, the scale of the problem, given what the science is finding, um, can we ultimately afford to fix it? And the, the other question is, can we afford not to?
So the, the answer is, um, is the money that's being allocated right now is really investigational. And, and better than I, I actually have somebody here with me who is a, um, a, uh, a, a PE and is a, an expert in remediating and addressing some of these problems out there. Um, she, uh, she, she's a, a uh, multi-generational Long Islander and, um, and works with a company called Langen Engineering. They're, um, and they're, they're one of the leaders in cleaning this stuff up. Kim, do you mind uh, maybe addressing for a second about, um, about what steps are being done now? Can you hear me? Okay, hi. So um, in terms of cleaning up these contaminants, one thing that, uh, just kind of echo what Mike said before, they're emerging contaminants, but they're also called contaminants of emerging concern. Um, they've been around for decades, and while they're being phased out right now, um, they're persistent, which is one of the characteristics that made them so uh, valuable, but it's also one of the reasons they're an environmental concern right now. Um, for your PFAS components, uh, most of those compounds can be treated with traditional technology that is used to clean drinking water sources. Um, your granular activated carbon, which um, is fairly commonly used for drinking water. Um, so while there might be more maintenance involved, um, we do have the science to clean PFAS from water. 1,4-dioxane, a little bit of a different animal. Um, it loves to be in water, so most traditional technology cannot clean it. Um, so what is happening right now is there are, um, there are pilot programs going on around the island. I know Suffolk County Water Authority um, has a pilot program with an advanced oxidation process system. And what that system does is it basically uses hydrogen peroxide, light, and it degrades the chemical. So what's happening right now is there are these bench scale studies um, and full scale studies that, such, as, uh, such as Suffolk County Water Authorities. And it's basically, this, this money is going in to build these systems and to determine what needs to be done to clean water to the levels that DOH, uh, that New York State is going to be recommending. Um, so that work is happening. There is money that is allocated to it through the Clean Water Infrastructure Act, which um, Governor Cuomo <coughs> began in 2017. Um, so that work is happening, but what's going to happen in the next few years um, is that a lot of these water districts that have one port dioxane above the one part per billion standard are going to need to build these systems, and that's kind of where the challenge is, because um, these systems cost upwards of $10 million to, to build and about <coughs> 3 to $5 million to run every year. Um, so that is, a, that is a challenge that um, the water districts I know are, are, are currently now facing. So the three million dollars that each of the communities are given is just a just a head start. Yeah, and there are other. Um, I know, for example, I'm originally from Huntington. Um, South Huntington has one of their plants that they did get. I think it was a uh, thirteen or fifteen million dollar grant for. Um, so depending on when these um, applications for this grant money went in, you might have gotten more money. Uh, but now that it is such a widespread problem over the island, uh, the state's kind of trying to figure out how to allocate the money. Uh, evenly so that everyone kind of has their fair share so they can get a jump start on this. Thank you. So um, in, in addition to many other hats that I wear, I also serve on the Suffolk County Land Bank and we deal with tax delinquent um, contaminated sites, many of them form a Superfund sites. Um, and one of them uh, we just ran a phase two on a, up in the Kings Park area um, because uh, I see former legislator Wayne Horsley shaking his head. Uh, it's a, 
an industrial area, um, and uh, there are probably going to be all sorts of surprises. This particular property uh, is called the Steck Philbin property. It was um, uh, for a couple of decades a sand mine, and then when there was a big a hole in the ground, they dumped C&D waste in it, and uh, what's anybody's guess what uh, is now uh, in the ground, but what we found by running a phase two just a few months ago uh, were that we had a couple hot spots um, on that property. Uh, so you heard the 10 parts per trillion. The two hot spots are 821 uh, and uh, three, uh, 383. Um, so by you know measurement standards, that's huge. and. It's not just the fire retardant foam. Um, if PFAS was in your Teflon, that was used to fry your eggs uh, since 1938. Uh, so it's all over the place. And we're only beginning uh, to, I think, uh, get a handle on how pervasive it is. Uh, I think Kim is exactly right, and, and, and as is Mike. Uh, you know, we're going to have to probably prioritize how we address these various things. So when Marshall says, can we afford to do it, or can we afford not to do it. Um, I think it is a vexing issue. Uh, it's going to require uh, prioritization. You know, when we set about to, for example, go to a water district in Nassau, uh, where the rates in some places are already, you know, uh, creating a huge ouch factor, and you're talking about adding, uh, you know, a $10 million piece of equipment in a small water district of $3 million per annum to actually maintain it, uh, well, uh, that's I've already been to meetings down in, in that county uh, where people are just you know saying I can't afford this. So this is what you're going to be running up against. Um, the, the fact that yes uh, we can't afford not to do it, but frankly at the end of the day it's going to wind up being that we really can't afford to do a lot of this, and it's going to wind up being you know where is the minimal resources that we have uh, going to be finally allocated. Thank you. Oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just briefly, this, this whole discussion on PFAS uh, and, and all these emerging contaminants reminds me a lot of the, what happened with the paint industry. Um, so lead-based paint was, was pervasive as well. Um, uh, it still is to a certain degree in the housing stock. Uh, and the industry kind of threw up their hands uh, when, when it was outlawed. And we were looking to figure out how do you abate all the lead in the housing stock across the, these buildings. And, and the answer from the lead industry is, well, it's already in there. There's nothing we could really do. Um, and what happened was it was the Bar Association, the, the lawyers, uh, filed suit against these lead companies, um, held them accountable for their actions or inactions, as the case were. Uh, and, and there were big settlements uh, where uh, money changed hands from the Sherman Williams of the world, and by the way, they're still around, right? Uh, to the to the places where it needed to be to abate a lot of lead in these buildings, and it's still a big issue. Uh, but I think the the one of the answers, and you know, we can't afford to do nothing, and we can't afford to do what we need to do. But we should start holding the companies that are responsible accountable, uh, and it's incumbent upon the the bar. To, to represent the water districts to recover these, these costs associated with wellhead treatment. It's incumbent upon those who are, are hurt by this to, to file suit against Dow, and there's all kinds of issues with statute of limitations that could potentially be addressed by local legislatures um, or state and federal, but you know, it, it's, we need to work as advocates and we need to hold the companies accountable. And I think Dorian has something. No, to no I'm just going to follow up because yeah. Mike was making an observation when he appeared at the Suffolk County, uh, uh, you know, legal association meeting. Bar that they're, 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 the, the, the attorneys in the private sector are circling this. 
Um, there are already suits of, uh, from Hampton Bays, from West Hampton, because you saw the Gabreski Airport and all the people that had to be uh, reconnected to the Water Authority. So the Water Authority is suing um, the Deep Pockets. Uh, the county is suing the Deep Pockets. Uh, so they've been taking your advice, Frank. <laughs> and I'm not going to say who, but I can let you know that a number of industrial and manufacturing clients are doing investigational testing on their properties just to find out what is their exposure, because they that has gotten their attention as well, for sure. I got, yeah, one, and one last thing, too. Um, I, I, I'm in this interesting position where I'm, I, I work in an insurance company. I work with developers, real estate owners. Uh, so I'm on the side of those who have this potential liability. I'm also on the side of an advocate as a board member for Save the Great South Bay. So I have to tread the line a little bit. Uh, but I think it's also incumbent upon property owners and real estate owners when they're investigating, uh, looking at the next property, uh, rather than put their heads in the sand and play ostrich and not do this relatively expensive testing to figure out what contamination is or isn't there, I think in, instead of just looking, poking a couple holes and looking for the stuff that you suspect to be there, you also need to be testing for the emerging contaminants so we can identify the issue and start to, uh, to, to Dorian's point, identify where we need to put the limited resources for, for some remediation, remedial action. So thanks. Thanks, Frank. Yeah. Uh, Frank, as, as he mentioned, is uh, the director of City of Great South Bay, also uh, an environmental lawyer. Um, we have here, of course, a, a lawyer, uh, a scientist, or someone who represents a whole team of scientists, an environmental advocate, and a, a, a Policymaker in in in, in uh, uh, Dorian Dale, the uh, director of sustainability and recovery for Suffolk County, and we also have uh, citizens. So between all those constituencies, uh, we would potentially have the uh, ability to tackle these uh, large issues. I'm not worried about the, uh, the 50 people who've assembled here today. I'm, I'm worried about the uh, three million. Uh, people in Nassau and Suffolk, uh, 1.5 million each, who um, really don't have much uh, uh, awareness about, growing awareness potentially, but uh, you, you've been working on uh, methoprene since 1999, right? Yep. And, yeah, and it, 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 it almost seems to be going backwards because the last uh, county uh, legislature vote was like uh, you know, 13 to one to continue the spring. I guess the question is this, how can we be more effective in communica communicating to the general public, from, from us all, uh, as to uh, what the what the scope of the problem is, because we if we don't have a, the uh, larger public support in this, we're not going to get anywhere. So how do we really engage the public in a way that can uh, change the uh, the dialogue? That's an open-ended question, Marshall. Um, you know, my, I guess my work in addressing methoprene, it doesn't quite go back to 99. It was uh, probably around 2005 when that was being reviewed as part of the EIS. Um, you know, obviously, uh, we haven't come to the point where the county legislature has prohibited methoprene use, as they should. Um, I don't have an easy answer other than to say that we need to continue to communicate and resonate the issues. I, I do think at, at some point um, critical mass 
will lead us uh, and ultimately lead elected officials to respond to constituency. So um, I know that's not a clear answer, but we, we just have to keep talking about it, keep educating, and really turn out. And I, I think, you know, as we appeared at the legislature in CEQ, um, you know, we need an army of people that, um, you know, they, everyone doesn't have to be as, as versed in the subject, but to show up and at least uh, convey to your elected officials that this is a, a serious matter. And un until we have that critical mass, then I think the, um, on their part, you know, the political or easier decision will, will continue. I would add to that, being reasonable and having a balanced view is, is critically important. Okay, um, and I'm a big music guy, so I'll use the reference. Widespread panic is not really the, the answer here, okay? The idea of pulling Tide off the market and not using Teflon pans is probably not really that, that realistic, okay? Um, okay? Because, I mean, all the detergents have this in there. And the idea is that the manufacturers need some time to start changing some of their procedures, okay? I cook my eggs on it. Although if you go into Bed Bath & Beyond right now, you can see, um, you walk in, there are displays, PFAS free frying pans, okay? And low sodium too, right? Okay, and, and, cuss, and, and people that walk in don't know what that means. So I think making sure the education around this and the answers are realistic, and I know for, for our part is that we're gonna try to make sure that the data that are out there are, are real and that are understandable. So I think actually there is, you know, encouraging news, perhaps not on all fronts, uh, but I think there clearly is an elevated awareness, and not just with the 50 people in this room. Um, you know, every day there's something in the news that arouses people's attention. Um, anybody, uh, we're on the South Shore, uh, Tanner Park Beach has the distinction of being the most frequently closed beach in New York State. That's right in Copeg Lindenhurst. Uh, and then it begs the question, because you know, when it popped, um, everybody's hair is on fire and they need to figure out what is contributing here because we've got the great, we've got the Bergen plant almost, you know, across or contiguous actually to that uh, particular uh, uh, beach, but the outfall pipe takes the uh, effluent and, uh, out three miles, so that's conceivably not the issue. There is probably a lot of legacy contributors because there's still areas uh, to the north of Tanner that, that uh, uh, a, either haven't been sewered or are still on cesspools and septics. Um, but as it turns out, in actually evaluating, um, there's another systemic issue, and it's not just stormwater, which you know per, will regularly uh, really just elevate these levels that cause these uh, beach closures. Um, you know, it's the way we've structured ourselves in the shop tour, all the bulkheading we have. Um, you have canals in Babylon Village uh, that get putrid. Um, but uh, you don't want to go in and dredge them out because there are going to be like uh, environmental contaminants that you don't even know about that are going to cost you a boatload of money. Um, so that doesn't happen. And in Tanner, uh, it's constructed in such a way that it actually uh, catches a lot of the detritus and a lot of the bird droppings, and there's no flushing. And so as a result, um, everything just festers there, and it gets the kinds of results that we've seen. Um, so there are clearly all sorts of elements uh, that contribute to it. Uh, have, how many people in the room have heard of uh, Reclaim Our Water? Raise your hand. 
okay, about half the room. Now that's an initiative that began five years ago. Marshall's been involved, um, and it's uh, designed to address the 360,000 homes in Suffolk County, that's 75% of Suffolk County, uh, that are still on cesspools and septics. And when I post that on my Facebook uh, page, people in Illinois going, are you kidding me? That's third world stuff. You're, you've got the chic Hamptons there and all that wealth and you're not treating your wastewater? Um, Tom Monobine is one of the pioneers in actually doing installations of advanced, uh, innovative, uh, uh, you know, wastewater treatment systems. So again, the awareness level, even in this room, is not conceivably where we would want it to be, um, but it is an incremental progress. I, that's my take on it. So, so as a director of City of the Great South Bay, um, uh, we think a lot about this. How do we reach the individual? Um, as Tad has mentioned, you know, our tagline is start where you stand. Uh, so so we've, we've, we've thought a lot about this and I've myself given some thought as to how we can reach people regarding the methoprene issue. Uh, and, and the first thing I think would be important is to kind of let people know that Suffolk County has a do not spray registry. Uh, and, and, and we need to we need to distribute that out there and get people to sign this and I think it's a good idea to, to raise people awareness. So, but beyond that, um, there's local control that you can take care of. There are products on the market right now that emit carbon di dioxide um, and light, which attracts the mosquitoes. So mosquitoes, the, the blood suckers find you because you emit carbon dioxide. So, so it mimics the natural human uh, metabolism, emits carbon dioxide, attracts mosquitoes, and kind of sucks them in. So it's a non-poison way to, uh, to locally control mosquito populations. Um, and then I think we have to look more, more broadly on a regional scale, what we've done to local predators. So, so Kevin mentioned briefly the ditching within the marshes and the, the wintertime vector control of widening and maintaining these ditches. These ditches are a large part of the reason why we have saltwater mosquito issues. So uh, I had the displeasure or pleasure of being an intern as an undergraduate biology student of working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on the Wertheim and Seatuck marshes. Uh, and my job was to go out and figure out where the mosquito larvae was, I, I, pr presumably so they can target the larvicides that they were spraying on the marsh. And it was clear that the mosquito larvae were breeding on the little squares in between the ditches. So what was the pan of the marsh is now just standing water. The fish, which typically eat mosquito larvae in these marshes, are largely confined to the ditches. So we continue to maintain these ditches were that were dug in the 30s uh, in order to uh, keep the standing water down, but we're, in some ways we're, we, keep, uh, we keep exacerbating this existing issue. So, so we really need to, to work on restoration of natural hydrology. And I, yeah, go ahead, Dorian, please. So I'm glad you brought that up, Frank, particularly with Wertheim, because that has been a wetlands uh, uh, restoration project. And I also just wanted to also share something from the head of our vector control because I, I think often you know these guys uh, who really are doing I think um, very uh, uh, engaged work um, get painted with a broad brush you know they're evil incarnate and uh, they're poisoning us uh, but uh, I think there really is a sensibility about mesoprene about the various alternatives like BTI and the blend and I just wanted to read you uh, the last paragraph of uh, something that uh, time Iwanoko shared with me because it speaks to Frank's point and he goes um, this is the vector control uh, lead saying long term my goal is to push wetlands restoration integrated marsh management like we undertook at wartime 
to control mosquitoes naturally. We have additional NFWF wetland projects in Gardner's Park, Timber Point, West Sayville, and a FEMA project at Smith Point already permitted. The Gardner's project is already underway and showing excellent control of mosquitoes in the areas we have completed. Uh, we also have USDA slash NRCS uh, grants for Mastic uh, Beach to restore properties that were damaged during Sandy and to remove the structures and restore the site to wetlands. Um, yesterday we visited a DEC property, uh, Fireplace Neck in Brookhaven, uh, with uh, staff and consultants and are assisting the DEC in designing uh, a wetland restoration and mosquito control uh, priority. So I think the, 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 uh, the uh, concerns have been heard, uh, they're being engaged, perhaps not as, as rapidly or as uh, uh, comprehensively as some would uh, care, but uh, there, there is certainly, I believe, uh, a substantive response. Mark? That's one of the uh, challenges, isn't it? Uh, you know, time is of the essence. That's not getting any better. We're kind of ra racing the clock here. Um, so, how do we how do we um, instill this sense of urgency in in, in, uh, in, in people? I mean, this is uh, uh, you know, someone asked me. Um, Wayne about a year ago said, so, is the Great South Bay getting better? You've been doing this now for seven years. And uh, I said, no, it's actually getting worse. Uh, so, uh, you know, Professor Goldberg, for instance, uh, has theorized that uh, by 2030, uh, all our marshes will be gone because of the, uh, because of water quality. Uh, so, um, you know, I, we're, we're on what's called a burning platform. So I'm just I'm just wondering how we can throw some matches on that. Do you want to throw a match, Kevin? Okay, so um, urgency. Uh, I'm going to uh, plead a certain pedigree as far as the Great South Bay is concerned. I've grown up on it since uh, the 1950s. I live at West Gilga Beach. I raised my children there. I was talking to Mike Bush a little earlier um, about how. We've seen an ebb and flow um, in wildlife. Uh, I mean, the avian life uh, has really been incredible and prolific and, and just um, multifaceted, uh, which wasn't the case back in the DDT era of, of the 1960s. Um, but there are also all sorts of other ebb and flows that frankly are difficult to identify what, you know, what the causative you know, uh, you know, impact is. Uh, so uh, as I was also explaining to somebody else, I. Uh, my son's a little science geek, so he used to, as a kid, uh, you know, capture ribbon snakes and hog snakes and then uh, pluck all the prolific bufo toads that were all over the place and, and feed it to the snakes. Um, they've all disappeared. Um, but on the other hand, uh, when I was young, we'd go out and pick, it, pick up 30, 40 uh, pufferfish, blowfish, um, and uh, Mike Bush had just documented the other day the return. Uh, of, of the blowfish. So it's not clear in, in, in the context of how these um, you know, circumstances seem to you know, deplete and then expand how and where it's happening. So um, the marsh and wetland uh, situation is clearly you know, a very serious one. Um, if we could conceivably have more resources to, to address wetland uh, restoration, but there, you know, are, this is a massive issue. There's been a 35% depletion in, in wetlands over the last, uh, you know, 40 years. Eelgrass, 90% since the 1940s, right? Um, so, um, you know, there have been places that have actually rapidly seen restoration. I think Tampa Bay, when they finally put in, you know, comprehensive uh, wastewater treatment. So, um, 
you know, the one bit of good news, I think, is that, you know, Long Islanders, even if they aren't necessarily aware of all the particulars, you know, they're surrounded by water, they can get it. Everybody, regardless of party, is fundamentally an environmentalist. Um, so I think we've got a lot of, uh, you know, constructive stuff to work with. Um, and, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, we can make a difference before it's too late. I like to say, when people say, we want to do it for our children or our grandchildren, I always respond, do it for yourself and it'll be done for your children and grandchildren. That's my takeaway. <laughs> you know, the, in, in terms of lighting the fire, um, we have at the lab sometimes people come in with a jar of water and they say, I want you to test this. I want to know if I have PFAS in my, in my drinking water. And, you know, we'll say, well... And they say, well, I washed my hands before I took the sample. And, and, and you know, we say, well, you know, in the soap is PFAS. So just, just to, you know, education, again, lighting the fire is massive education about how this looks out. I mean, just to give you some context, the, the environmental professionals that are out sampling for this are told they can't use soap the day that they're taking the sample. They can't use Teflon tubing. They can't use uh, notebooks that have no Teflon. Um, by the way, our York notebooks don't have any Teflon. <laughs> um, but you know, it's um, it, it's really education. So lighting the fire on education. We're educating our clients, but it's really the the public as well. I, I would just like to comment on, I guess, political leadership. And uh, Dorian mentioned DDT, and of course, we're all familiar with DDT. Uh, you you may not be aware that it was actually Suffolk County that led the nation in 1968 in banning DDT. Uh, this was in advance of the federal government taking such action in 1970, I believe. Um, you know, they stepped out, and I, I would urge Suffolk County legislature to show that political courage with methaprene. And as, I, as I've indicated, I think it's a reasonable uh, alternative. Obviously, they have the larvicide BTI that can be applied, and there's uh, no objection to that. And the qualifier, if in fact West Nile becomes a, a presence in a, a certain marsh area, that there be limited applications of methoprene to suppress uh, the potential for disease. So um, I, I guess I would challenge our elected officials that, you know, put aside the politics, show uh, some political courage, let's do the right thing with methoprene and, and you know, uh, move on to the next issue of concern. Yeah, and, and, and towards doing the right thing, um, sometimes we have incredible opportunities that get dropped on our lap about doing the right thing. To Dorian's point, the, the things that are degrading ecological structure and function across Long Island are exceedingly complex. But one thing that is clear is that the impoundments that are located across Long Island South Shore, which were put there for, to harvest ice and for mill ponds, uh, that, in large part, speaks to upland health, including things like reptile and amphibian uh, habitat usage, as well as the health of the overall bay. Now, serendipitously, the dam at West Brook, which is by Baird Cutting Arboretum, recently failed. And Save the Great South Bay and a coalition of a lot of environmental groups, including Kevin McAllister's group, Defend H2O, have been advocating to leave it open. Uh, and let nature have that one, because there's certainly plenty of impoundments across Long Island. And, you know, Kevin, maybe you can just spend a minute or so to talk about Carmen's River, because I think it's an incredibly pressing issue. I think Seacup's leading on, on that, too, okay. on the West Brook. 
Oh, sure. Yes, SeaTuck has been leading river restoration and revival uh, for decades. And, of course, we've been working alongside uh, Enrico and Maureen for that, I mean, certainly. I just had a suggestion whispered to me. I think it's an excellent one. Chris, uh, USGS, uh, would you like to uh, uh, offer some commentary on what we're listening to? Well, I, I want to echo um, some of what Michael said about um, getting the science right um, and that the challenge is not only understanding what's in drinking water but in groundwater. And um, you know, much of what he said is, is a challenge that, that my organization, US Geological Survey, Basis in, in working with some of the same partners like the Southern County Water Authority and the state agencies. I would say one thing that we're doing, um, kind of in the spirit of maybe buying us some time until we can come up with more cost-effective means of treating difficult contaminants like 1,4-D, is um, modeling groundwater flow on the, on the island on an island-wide basis and identifying where we have waters that are likely affected by human activities, waters 100 years, groundwaters 100 years or less in age, versus those areas where we have older groundwater that likely is not going to be impacted by things like 1,4-D or PFOS compounds. That doesn't necessarily mean that giving that information to water suppliers so that they can drill wells into these older groundwaters um, and provide or blend in water that doesn't have these issues is a silver bullet. We're not going to drill our way out of this problem. But just like um, you know, and using the climate change analogy where folks have considered natural gas to be a, a bridge fuel, it might give us some time to come up with something a little bit cheaper than AOP and um, you know, more cost effective so that we're not throwing tons and tons of money at this. So on the previous example I cited from Spec, uh, filled with the 821 and 388, you know, these hot spots for the uh, PFAS, um, we also got data from contiguous wells from the Suffolk County Water Authority, which does a very intensive job of, of evaluating a wide range of contaminants, and the water and, and the drinking water was in good shape. This was groundwater evaluation at a fairly shallow depth, um, but um, as I think Chris indicated, you know, you're dealing with you know various levels, and when you're getting into our drinking water supply, often it goes down hundreds and hundreds of feet. Which isn't to say that you know what's happening on the surface isn't percolating down. We are seeing concerning elevations, for example, of nitrogen, you know, in, in the magazine, for example. And so, uh, you know, this is. Nothing to like sit back and be comfortable with because um, it's uh, you know with the PFAS again, guys. Uh, we're conceivably uh, right now at this particular property having the DEC identify this first as a P state, and that means one step to a Superfund site. Uh, and if this particular industrial area is super, super funded, I can tell you you're going to have an awful lot of Superfund sites on Long Island. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. Uh, if we have any uh, questions from the audience at this point, uh, yes, Jane? Um, having been in, involved in politics, um, and, and Kevin knows this well, um, <clears throat> if you were to lobby, <clears throat> excuse me, an intelligent legislator. <laughs> um, he just retired. It's, well, it's true. I, you have to get a legislator that's willing to listen and you know, can can figure it out that what you're telling them isn't. And your point about wildfire, you know, responses is right on the money. Get hold of a couple of legislators, lobbying them with people that aren't going to scream and yell and carry on, and demand. I demand that you do. The minute you do that to these 
not so intelligent legislators. That's the last you're ever going to get through to them. And, and it's, I'm telling you the truth. But if you can get hold of a legislator, and Tom Silmy's name comes to mind, he does listen and he does react. Um, and that's how it happened with me. Actually, the county attorney mentioned to me that the um, county was supposed to prepare a plan before they um, go out and spray from mosquitoes, and they hadn't done it in 16 years. And he said, you might want to bring that up. And I was like, 16 years? Oh, my God. If it's a law, they should be, you know. So I brought it up, and it brought out people from the woodwork I became the enemy of Suffolk County, which I could care less, but Kevin was a star, and he got up there, and he kept coming, and kept coming, and kept coming, and more people heard, and then it got to papers, and more people read it. So that's my point. If you could get a few people for their districts to go and lobby particular legislators, both on the county level and on the state level, I think you'd see some movement if one of them puts a bill in and it goes to the health committee or to the uh, other environmental committee, that's really where you're actually going to see some type of good response. And, you know, letters to the editor. Lots of people read that. That's excellent advice, and uh, uh, we'd love to have you as a regular uh, source when it comes to uh, government relations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, speaking of government relations, uh, Wayne, yes? Yeah, this is just a quick one. Uh, uh, as, as with everything, there's always two sides to a story. This goes, this goes to uh, Kevin. Uh, recently, uh, well, the uh, reason why people live on Long Island is because of the water. They, they enjoy the bays, they enjoy the quality of life and, and everything. So <laughs> when you're dealing with recreational issues, uh, case in point, Hector State Park, uh, Hector recently opened up their uh, uh, camping grounds, which was originally closed because of fear of West West uh, Nile virus, uh, and they also built some they built some cottages on the on the waterfront. Um, to the the opposite view of that would be that those people who are recreating uh, are they're inundated with the nuisance mosquitoes, uh, and so that's a large constituency. What you want to enjoy your backyard? You want to enjoy you want to enjoy living on Long Island? How there are there are issues. You, you comply with not uh, putting methaprene in the in the uh, on the water uh, in the, the water the, the wetlands areas. But what about those areas just off the wetlands? Do you have the same feel? Because you can't put uh, you can't put larvae and insecticide in on uh, those areas. What what do you think about those parks and things like that that are that are on the above the water but uh, are not in the wetlands themselves? My thinking and um, certainly consistent with the other jurisdictions that prohibited methoprene applications where there's conveyance to surface waters, the receiving waters. I, I identified uh, BTI, which is uh, the alternative larvicide that is used by the county. Um, their argument is um, that it's not fully effective with the, the ultimately the larval stages. Uh, I think that's a reasonable compromise. Uh, I do not believe um, responding to nuisance control with the environmental implications that methoprene poses is, is acceptable. And I, I think we have to do a better job of informing uh, the public and the recreational users 
that you know Suffolk County is no longer using methylene because of uh, again the interest to protect the bay. So just one more comment. So in the, in the category of nuisance, you know, I live at West Gilda Beach, um, and we have brown spray. Uh, some guy comes in, I don't even know what he sprays. Could be DDT. Um, but uh, but you know we 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 are on the D, our, our house is on the do not spray list, principally because I don't think it works. Um, you know I just think it's a waste of time. But the vast majority of the community, based upon the nuisance element, has voted to keep doing it. Um, so um, I think uh, as others have suggested, um, and I think as you understand, there is a blend. Uh, you know at the vector control level between the application of mesoprene and BTI, they don't occur with you that. BTI alone is effective, and I think you know that. Um, and you also have had, you know, subsequent interactions with CEQ, like the one I witnessed, I guess, back what in 2014 when you and Ninavaji and uh, uh, Gloria, who was it, Gloria Roth, who was head of the, uh, the CEQ then? Some, some, but, but, but it is clearly an issue that isn't looked at as definitively as I think you've suggested. Um, the EPA hasn't, I don't think, at least based upon the literature I've read. Not, look, you've done this a couple of decades, so I really defer to you know the, the, the degree to which you've engaged it and really have a feel for it. Um, but from the rather, shall we say, uh, rapid reading that I've done of this, there clearly are you know other balancing views, and it's not just industry you know swooping down to uh, you know uh, protect uh, their their interests when it comes to spring. There are actually, I think people with legitimate and scientifically based views who take issue. Um, so that's part of the challenge that I think you face. Um, but just as a final like, kind of parting question, again, I asked this before, how many people in the room would like to see mesoprene, you know, a ban in Suffolk County? Raise your hands. Again, we're looking about half the room. Okay. Let's <laughs> <laughs> Well, with that, I'd really like to uh, thank the panel. They were wonderful. A special thanks is due the Westings Hospitality Group for their sponsorship of the speaker series. Water Matters is presented by York Analytical Laboratories. York is a full-service independent laboratory that provides analysis of environmental samples, including water, soil, and air, for regulated contaminants. With roots in air monitoring that predate the creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, York has become one of the premier full-service environmental laboratories in the Northeast. York generously sponsors Save the Great South Bay as we seek to better understand the Bay's problems and their possible solutions. A link to their website is in the podcast notes.